Welcome to On the Front Burner, where we give you a taste of important issues bubbling up in education and the world today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Matt O'Donnell, the Tech Innovation Specialist and Secondary History Content Coordinator at the Sonoma County Office of Education. And I'm Kelly McTerry, Curriculum Coordinator and Elementary History Content Coordinator at the Sonoma County Office of Education. Recently, there has been a rise in white nationalist incidents in the United States and in schools, including some schools here in Sonoma County. According to the Anti-Defamation League's Center on Extremism, white supremacist propaganda efforts nearly tripled between 2017 and 2018. This includes the distribution of racist, anti-Semitic, and Islamophobic materials. In fact, this past Friday, the Department of Homeland Security added white supremacist violence to its list of priority threats in a revised counterterrorism strategy. To learn more about how schools can deal with these incidents, we'll interview Nora Flanagan, a Chicago high school teacher who co-authored a toolkit on confronting white nationalism in schools. Nora, who has worked as a volunteer and organizer against racism for years, attended an event put on by Western State Center in Chicago last year as a way to connect with like-minded educators. She and others shared what they'd been experiencing and expressed their desire for a resource that schools could use to address rising incidents of white nationalism on campus. As they did so, it became apparent that they would be the ones to take action and create that resource. Nora partnered with Western State Center, as well as other anti-racist colleagues from around the nation, to author Confronting White Nationalism in Schools. Welcome, Nora. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Can you give us a little bit of a background about how you got into this work and what you started with? I'm in my 22nd year as a high school English teacher in the Chicago Public Schools, but I also grew up in Chicago and came up through the local music scene just as a fan going to shows. I was pretty deep into the punk scene in Chicago as a teenager. And that also happened to be when the neo-Nazi skinhead movement was up and running in Chicago, specifically on the South Side where I grew up. So just as I was kind of finding my own subculture identity, there were neo-Nazi skinheads in my neighborhood. So it's something that's always been on my radar. And as a teacher, I would therefore notice it when it cropped up among students. I just, I kind of had this background with it that other people didn't necessarily have to be able to recognize the patches or recognize the band names or kind of, you know, see the signs. And so it's something that has has kind of followed me since I was about 13 or 14. And over the last few years, I started noticing it more and I started noticing it differently. It's manifesting differently. So I started kind of reopening conversations with folks I've known who organize against racism. And and, and that's, that's how I became a vague expert on white nationalist recruitment of youth in high school. You use the term neo-Nazi. I've heard the term alt-right. The toolkit calls out white nationalism. Can you talk a little bit about when you use the term white nationalism, what exactly does that term refer to? So words are a funny thing. And this is where being an English teacher comes in handy. I say neo-Nazi when I refer to the folks I was seeing in the late 80s and early 90s because they had swastikas on their arms and they identified with what the Nazis said and did and they emulated Adolf Hitler. Nowadays, they would quickly deny that. No, no, no. They won't even admit that they're racist. They're just proud of who they are. And they just think that, you know, people should be separate. Like they have all these euphemisms. Alt-right itself was a short-lived euphemism. We use the term white nationalist now because that is sort of the cluster of ideology around which they all orbit. 
the idea that identity in America is, if not primarily, definitely it's up there, defined by whiteness, and that there are too many of them coming into our country. And I use those terms with, you know, air quotes around them, but this is audio, so you can't see me doing air quotes. So the nationalism and, and whiteness kind of evolving from this neo-Nazi movement, it, it's a pretty traceable lineage. It's just the terms have changed because they've rebranded themselves so many times. So in the toolkit, you there, there's a calling out of white nationalism's relationship with misogyny. Can you speak to that a bit? Conversations are finally starting to happen around the relationship between misogyny and white nationalism because of, tragically, a couple of the mass shooting incidents. There's documentation of the shooter in Dayton being really hateful towards women. And there are, you know, the incidents that happened in California and so forth, where there are just these links. And I think they were treated as, oh, also's. But now we're starting to connect the dots online between hostility towards women, hostility toward other marginalized groups. It's not a universal, but it happens a lot where if you see someone expressing hostility toward immigrant groups or toward Muslims or toward people of color in general, they also hate women a lot of the time. So recently you created a toolkit because schools don't really know how to handle white nationalism. We've seen it pop up in stories here in Sonoma County, throughout California and the rest of the country. What are some of the common mistakes that teachers and schools and administrators make in dealing with white nationalism at their site? Some of the most common mistakes we see are made with the absolute best intentions. And I mean that like best intentions for the school community. They're just misguided. The two most frequent mistakes we see are underreaction and overreaction. We'll start with underreaction. When schools underreact, they want to minimize. They don't want to talk about it. No school wants to be the school with the Nazi problem. No school wants to make the papers for it. But also, they don't want to upset, you know, the the kind of daily processes that happen at school. Sometimes it is honestly in the interest of protecting their students' kind of sense of safety that, okay, let's just move right along from this. Let's not give it a lot of attention. But that backfires because especially now, as soon as one adult in the building knows that something happened, most of the students already know. And so to minimize it and underreact communicates to the students that you didn't care about this thing that happened or it's not really a big deal. So that's a backfire. Overreacting is also well-intentioned. Like you want to send a message, let's communicate our values strongly, suspend the kid, let's have an expulsion hearing, call the police. These can backfire because they can martyr the student in question to this you know, political ideology that they might even just be dabbling with. And you will certainly drive a kid further into that movement. That I've heard again and again and again by people who have removed themselves from white nationalism is that they were driven in further by how alienated they were in their school community. So overreacting is going to have the opposite effect. Do you see this as a school-based approach to solving the problem, an administrative-based approach, or for the classroom teacher, or all of the above? Yeah, I was just going to say, can I just say yes? Um, it's for everybody. One of the one of the first things we decided about how to organize our toolkit, I, I wrote it alongside my two excellent co-authors, Jessica Acey and Lindsay Schubiner of the Western State Center. We decided we wanted response ideas for all the community stakeholders that who are invested in the life of a school. So every possible scenario in the toolkit that we bring up has suggested responses for students, because I'm a huge proponent of putting students first, teachers, 
administrators, school community members, other staff, like just get everybody into this conversation. Parents, we need to have parents in the conversation. And if you if you flip through the toolkit, you'll see that a lot of the suggested responses call on community stakeholders to engage with each other. In other words, admin, call in, you know, student leaders and have a conversation with them. Teachers, talk to your administrators. Parents, reach out to the administration. Everybody has to be talking to each other if we're going to handle this together. Why do you think oftentimes there is, you, it's almost like there's a sweet spot, not an underreaction, not an overreaction, but a direct reaction. Why do you think there is sort of a, an avoidance to have those conversations or to talk amongst those stakeholders? So I'm going to show my age here. I started teaching kind of at the dawn of the zero tolerance movement in education in the late 90s when everybody wanted like really heavy handed uniform response to student discipline issues. And some of that still survives. That's where we do see those kind of tendencies to overreact. And the underreaction is also an oversimplification. The problem is this is a complicated, this is a complicated issue. So it requires a complicated response. There isn't just a blanket policy we can slap into the books and know that that's going to fix it or even hope that that's going to fix it because every kid comes to white nationalism for different reasons, from a different angle to different extents. They express it differently. School communities respond differently. Their demographics are completely unique from one another. So there's no one size fits all. It has to be a conversation and it has to be holistic. It has to engage all those stakeholders. In your toolkit, you've kind of divided it between a reactive and a proactive approach. Can you tell us a story with each of those, a school district or an example of a teacher that had success in a reactive approach and then maybe one with a proactive approach? Sure. I like to lift up my colleague and friend, Tim Devine. He's the principal at a school in Chicago called Walter Payton College Prep. They were one of the schools that recently chose to reprint their entire yearbook at an enormous cost to the school because of some dicey hand signs in yearbook pictures. And Tim Devine, the principal, wrote the most thoughtful letter to his school community I may have seen in my 22 years of teaching, where he said, we don't know that these kids had ill intentions. We just know that it might be perceived that way. And that's not who we are. And that's not our values. So he rounded up the money and reprinted the whole yearbook. And it made the papers here in Chicago. And we've circulated that as a success story of taking a complicated road, having a conversation about it, responding to the community and reinforcing your values. That was an excellent reaction to a complicated situation that he easily could have minimized because other schools have. There's a good reaction. Proactively, more and more schools are forming what we refer to in the toolkit as culture and climate teams. And those are committees of teachers and other staff members, administrators, counselors, students get involved. A lot of schools have kind of an adjacent student voice or student leadership committee for those culture and climate teams. And they discuss how things are going at school and what we're seeing and hearing and what we can be better about. There doesn't have to be an incident to improve your school climate. You can get together and listen to students because chances are, if there hasn't been a major incident, things are still happening that aren't sitting well with students. Like right now in the, in the day and age we're living in, there are conversations to be had everywhere. And, and if we set up time and space for those conversations to happen and then we listen, that's one of the best proactive approaches you can take. You spoke to kids coming to white nationalism for different reasons, and you just spoke to the idea of involving students in conversations proactively. 
Tell me a little bit about what it is about the age group of middle school and high schoolers that make them particularly vulnerable to recruitment by white nationalism and how we can address the age-specific needs of students in this way. Can I start just by saying that that age just kind of sucks? I mean, seventh grade is rough. Eighth grade is rough. Starting high school and oftentimes, you know, starting all over again with new friend groups and new school structures and new school community is rough. And you feel off balance. Add to it that a lot of times when kids move up to a junior high or move up to a high school that includes a larger kind of geographic feeder area, they're experiencing diversity at a level they haven't previously. So you take the part where middle school, junior high, high school, those are rough years for a lot of kids. Now let's throw off their sense of identity and their sense of community by putting them in a more diverse situation to that which we're, which they're accustomed and may not feel prepared for. So for starters, because I think we've often looked at vulnerable potential recruits as lower income, alienated white kids from jobless areas. That was true in the late 80s and early 90s. Now we're seeing a lot of white nationalist recruitment and a lot of activity from more affluent white communities because they're experiencing a different kind of alienation at that age. One of the things you reference a couple times in the toolkit is how white nationalists try and reframe the debate and that they take the tactic of making it a free speech issue or a white identity issue, not a hate issue. Is that something that you not only teach teachers to recognize, but students as an English teacher, is that part of your curriculum that you're trying to develop? So I think you're referencing one of my favorite parts of the toolkit, which is five common defenses of white nationalism and confession. That was my favorite one to write because it was so cathartic and so therapeutic because I hear those all the time. Yeah. What about reverse racism and racism's over? And yes, I teach my students as an English teacher, I teach them the different kinds of logical fallacies that people try to use in an argument. We teach rhetoric starting freshman year. And we're not short on examples to show our students. It's everywhere. I even teach a unit on internet-based rhetoric and all of the flaws ingrained in internet communication, like the psychology of the comments section. We need to kind of demystify those incredibly bad faith arguments that our students encounter every single day online and in real life. As we head into the upcoming election, what challenges and opportunities do you foresee for school communities in terms of this? Oh, that's a hard question. (laughs) I mean, I've been a teacher through a lot of elections, local, statewide, national. We always try to engage our students in, in the election process and kind of debrief with them, mainly in social science classes, but also in English classes. We talk, like I said, we teach rhetoric. As far as what to expect coming up, there's a lot of speculation that the rhetoric is going to get uglier. And, you know, that's a way that teachers can support their students when they come into school the next day. Like last time around, when the now president referred to Mexican rapists and murderers and criminals, my Mexican-American students came in the next day and you could see it on their faces. Like this was impacting them. And my Muslim students, like you can see that this weighs on them. So as teachers, one of the things we're always trying to do is support our students and make them feel safe in our school buildings. And in that respect, teaching is not a political act as much as it is an act of you know, compassion and providing care and safety for our kids. How do we get teachers and and what classes do we think they should start bringing up their own knowledge on this topic? Where do you see it fitting in best? Is it in English class? Is it in history, social science classes? Or should it be in every class? 
I think there is space for a bit of it everywhere. I know that a lot of like AP biology teachers teach the history of eugenics and how that has been politicized and how nationalism has kind of fed off of pseudoscience. That's awesome. I have a colleague who's getting his he's getting his doctorate in teaching physics and he was just telling me that he's doing this whole strand of research on racist math and how we've taught really racist math. I won't as an English teacher begin to expound on that but I want to know more now. I know that my colleagues in the social science department have really tightened up their assessment rubrics as far as vetting valid sources to the extent that like they are they are incorporated into the toolkit. They gave me great feedback as far as what they do when a kid cites Richard Spencer, Richard Spencer in his research paper or lists Jordan Peterson's podcast as one of his sources for an AP US history class. We're not forcing politics on students in cases like that. We're teaching them how to vet sources, and that's an important skill regardless. So I think there is space in every class. In English, I spend a lot of time advocating to my colleagues to diversify our curriculum because our students need to see that their voices and experiences and identities are valued. I mean, and that's a way that that's not even like actively and explicitly engaging with white nationalism as an issue. It's just good teaching. I think all of these are good teaching. I think all of them aren't necessarily politicizing education. They're just good teaching for the students who are coming into our classrooms. In the toolkit, you include links to other useful sites like a database of white nationalist symbols from the ADL. How do you go about selecting these resources? That was challenging because we wanted to keep the toolkit concise, but as thorough as possible. And especially when it comes to symbols, symbols change all the time. We just reprinted the toolkit. I guess you could call it a second edition. And we had to update the name of a hate group that changed their name. We had to add a different symbol. We also had to add a section for what happens when white nationalism comes from staff members. We can talk about that if you want. Choosing the resources was tricky. We wanted to get a good scope. We didn't want everything to be kind of doomsday. We wanted to show a lot of success stories and cover as much ground as we could in an accessible resource for educators because teachers receive a lot of resources and so do administrators. And our goal for this one was always to make it what we've referred to as flippable, as in something you could pick up, flip through and find something useful quickly. You talked about you know teachers that are white nationalists and, and a little bit before kind of systemic racism. What role have educators played in maintaining, you know, white nationalism has been an issue at schools for as long as I've been a teacher, which sounds like longer than you've been a teacher. Um, so what role do educators play in, in continuing this problem? I think we play as many roles in continuing this problem as we can in solving it. Because just like we just ran down the list of all the different subject areas where we can impact this conversation, there are just as many ways where we have furthered the problem. Again, I get in a lot of arguments, respectful professional arguments, with my colleagues in the English department about what's worth reading in an English class. And we all know that like the great American books, capital G, capital A, capital B, tend to be written by straight white guys who've been dead for a really long time. And no disrespect to Mark Twain. I like Mark Twain. No disrespect to J.D. Salinger. I really like J.D. Salinger. But we need to make space for other voices and other experiences to communicate our values because we can't say we value diverse experiences and then hand kids a stack of books by white guys. We're talking out of both sides of our face if we do that. I could not agree more with with your last statement. And 
kind of book lover to book lover, do you have any recommendations for teachers in authors or titles uh, that you would encourage people to explore? I am in the process of phasing out Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger, or at least walking it back a little bit and introducing I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter. I'm thinking the author's last name is Sanchez, but I just learned 150 new names, so my names are a blur right now. She's a Chicago author. It is really a modern Latinx Chicago-based Catcher in the Rye, if you think about it. And I've made the argument that that would be a solid replacement. Colson Whitehead is finding his way into classrooms. A colleague of mine teaches Underground Railroad. I just read The Nickel Boys this summer, and that's a game changer that I want to work into my class as far as the legacies of slavery, because I don't know that we're getting it right either if the only books by Black authors we teach are slave memoirs. They're important. They play a huge role in the lineage of American literature, but we're relegating the African-American literary voice to a long time ago. So I love the idea of working in Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. That's my next goal. There are so many stories of a single person and to relegate a, a whole race to a single narrative or strand of narratives is so limiting, both in the way that people of that identity see themselves represented, but also how that identity is represented to others and how it's understood by others. Yeah. I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter is not an immigration story. Immigration plays a role immigrant communities play a role, but Mexican-American literary voices have also too often been limited to just that one story. And that's a really important story, but it's not the only one. And it's, I think it's really important for young adults to see people of color living these full, complicated, interesting lives. Like why, why is it just Holden Caulfield that gets to have an identity crisis at age 16? Everybody does. So let's hear more of them. With your toolkit and getting as much exposure to it as possible, what, what is your plan in, in getting school districts, individual teachers, and, and getting out to as many different people as possible? So the Western States Center who sponsored the toolkit and helped us get it written and have published it and have distributed it for the past, what now, eight months, I think. They've done a great job of reaching out to media outlets, fielding inquiries, connecting us with folks. But the distribution of this toolkit has been pretty organic as well. I mean, they set up a website where anybody could ask for it as a free PDF. That is still up. You can still get it for free almost immediately. Or folks can order hard copies from the same website. Can you tell us where teachers or other educators can go and get the toolkit? The toolkit is available for free as a PDF or by request for a small cost for hard copies at westernstatescenter.org slash schools. And the general Western States Center website also will take you straight to it pretty easily. We wanted the toolkit to be available quickly and at absolutely no cost to teachers. And that's something that I have to give a shout out to the Western State Center for. They've made it possible for thousands of copies of this toolkit to be distributed to every state so far. And I think last time I checked, 18 other countries. Um, they're now talking about um, translating it into multiple languages as well. The distribution plan was, let's make this thing and tell as many people about it as possible and see who wants it. The thing is, we created this resource and then there were a number of national tragedies involving young men who have engaged with white nationalism. And then suddenly this conversation was everywhere and it was the best worst thing that could have happened. I mean, I would never hope for these tragedies to have taken place, but I'm glad we had this resource to talk to people about when they did. 
I imagine when these tragedies happen or when people start seeing your toolkit or or an incident happens at a school site, they're looking for a way to solve the problem and, and your name comes up. Are you available to districts or sites to go lead professional learning, uh, either virtually or in person? Has that been something that you've been doing or do you have colleagues that do that or is there people you would recommend for that? A little of everything. I have made myself as available as possible to talk to folks in my area. I've gotten together with communities, faith groups, school districts, libraries. Libraries are here for it. I've gone to some really great conversations at libraries. My colleague Jessica AC in Portland is doing the same thing. Lindsay Schubiner is in the Bay Area and she has been and she kind of is all up and down the West Coast. We're doing as much as we can. We also have been doing as much as we can to train trainers. Like we'll go to conferences and train a room full of people to take this resource back to their communities. We're trying to figure out a way to do that online, but you know what teachers hate? webinars. So we don't know what to do to get the info out to teachers in a way that is accessible and that they would be willing to do in their free time. Because that's the thing about teachers. We tend to be pretty overcommitted. At the very least, we've made the resource available so that and and we've tried to make it as user-friendly as possible. But we also have been fielding email inquiries and phone inquiries from districts that are experiencing a crisis. And we have and we have a Facebook group now for educators that are engaging with the toolkit and want to uh, ask us questions and folks that are on the mailing list from requesting the toolkit get an invitation to that. So a really long answer to your fairly straightforward question is we are doing everything we can in as many places for as many people. But the truth of it is Jessica and I are both full-time educators and Lindsay works full-time with the Western State Center. So right now, I will admit, we feel spread pretty thin. We feel needed in a lot of places and unable to be there. We wish we could be everywhere at once. A lot of people want to have these conversations and we want to support them. We are doing our best. How do you take care of yourself in this work? That's a really great question. And I'm going to repeat what I ended the last one with, which is doing our best. Coming up, In the next couple of months, we have webcasts, podcasts, conferences in a couple different states. I'm meeting with a couple of really great librarians in my area who want to write kind of an addendum to the toolkit for librarians. Because I don't know if you know this, but white nationalists have been targeting libraries and children's story times. Or they show up for an author they disagree with at an independent bookstore and they just like show up with guns on. It's There have been a number of incidents and they're getting increasingly scary. I spoke at the American Library Association conference in Washington, D.C in June and a bunch of librarians showed up because they are really concerned about this. And so there have been continuing conversations with librarians. So as far as like other adjacent projects to this, I'm also speaking at a lot of colleges. Community colleges and universities are seeing a surge as well. And while they find the toolkit very useful, there are some key policy differences and logistical differences between a high school and a college. So we might be looking at writing a college level addendum. And I speak to some middle school folk who want to kind of add a few middle school specific points. So there's kind of a few possible expansion packs in the work in the works, both formally and informally. So that's what we're working on. But as far as like how we're doing it all, we really care about this. The three of us who wrote it, we've been engaged with this work for a long time. And the Western State Center are doing massive things in the Pacific Northwest. I don't know if you follow their work, but things have been kind of a 
happening in Portland and in Washington State. And the Western State Center has been showing up for all of it. We wish we weren't so busy, but I'm glad there's people here to do this work. And I'm glad there's people to support us doing this work. So aside from that, go to the gym, eat well, try to get some sleep and spend time with my family when I can. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for the work that you're doing. Yeah, we want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy day and your very busy schedule in doing probably the most important work that we can do as educators. We'll put links to the toolkits and other resources on the podcast website. Thank you so much for having me, for having this conversation and for getting this information out there. I mean, we're doing the work, but you are too. And our toolkits would be sitting in boxes if people like you didn't think it was important enough to talk about. So thank you. Thank you for listening to On the Front Burner. This podcast was produced by the Sonoma County Office of Education 